0: Look what I found. Digging. <laughs> Any guesses as to what it is? It's a scroll. Yeah. We don't, we don't have a direct copy of this, so this is actually a pretty miraculous find. It is. Better open it the right way. The Lord has said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. It's the beginning of the book of the covenant, mentioned in Exodus, but we don't have a copy of it. So that's a pretty amazing find here in Tel Marlborough. The Dig. (laughs) We're going to talk about Covenant a little bit this morning. Um, Kelly's away and we're going through this series about neglected treasures. And I love this series. And part of the reason I love it is because it, it ties directly to what Steve just said at the table. If we don't understand the flow and the trajectory and the progress and the history of God among the Hebrew people, then the story of Christ is robbed of its backdrop. Everything that was happening then was going in a certain direction, and Christ fulfilled it. And then he commissioned us with with the effects. So last week we talked about hospitality and strangers, and I want to add one note about strangers Um, in the Old Testament, when you're talking about strangers, you're not talking about people you don't know in your neighborhood. Those would be neighbors. And people that you're friends with would be friends. And family would be family. But strangers are part of a trio. Widows, orphans, and resident aliens. When the Old Testament is talking about strangers almost always it's talking about immigrants people who are not native in your land because they're vulnerable so it's it's on us to be hospitable to them because God's heart is to protect them that's that's the long history of that if you want to do word searches are fun with that because about 30 38 times i think or 39 times Widows, orphans, and widows and orphans shows up as a pair. And God is really commanding the people to protect them, and then he's really cursing people when they don't. You take care of these people, and about half of that time, about 18 or 19 times, aliens shows up in there too. So the idea, that's a pre-welfare society, right? There, there's no societal safety net for those folks. So it's on the, the covenant people of God to be the safety net for them. You take care of those folks, God is saying, which ties into this idea of covenant this week. Okay, I read and read and read and read and read and read on covenants, and we could do an entire series. We could spend a year talking about covenant, and you don't want to do that in one sermon. So I've cherry-picked a couple things that I think are good for us to take home, Okay. First is there's two major kind of covenants that we'd pay attention to in the Old Testament. One is a parity covenant, not a parity, a parity, and it means it's a covenant between two basically equal parties, right? Uh, when I buy a house from somebody, um, a marriage, an agreement between two landholders in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, it would be agreements about land or property or marriage rights or whatever, between two basically equal folks. That's a parity. And then there's a suzerain covenant. Suzerainty is between a more powerful party and a less powerful party. So a king and his vassals, right? A king and his subjects or an empire and their vassal states. So the the other smaller nations or peoples that they either conquer or they make a treaty with. The more powerful one would offer what? Protection. Yeah, I, I will protect you in exchange for typically what? Loyalty and taxes, right? You're, you're not going to betray me and do an uprising and you're going to pay your taxes. That's That would be the basic setup for a suzerain covenant, right? There's a sense of protection, benevolence, but also definite sense of lordship and loyalty and uh, obligation from the weaker party to the stronger party, okay? All right, that's one thing just to hold in mind. Second thing, do you know the verb for covenanting in the Old Testament? Not the Hebrew word, I mean how we would translate in English. You, you buy a car, you throw a ball, you a covenant. Sign, okay? Now we do sign, pardon? Codify. Someone else. Invoke. Good, these are words that, right, this is exactly where I wanted to go. These are words that we we think about when we think about contracts, agreements, covenants. Promise. Yeah, enter into might be one that we would use. The Hebrew term is cut. Cut. You cut a covenant with somebody, and I'll give you a couple reasons, uh, some some stories about that. So when we were in Japan the first time, um, <clears throat> we taught a lot of gospel singing classes. It's just something that kind of came about, and that's one way that we interacted with the community. People were interested in singing. The movie Sistrac Two had come out and caused it. Really, it caused a grassroots movement of black gospel in Japan, which is funny to watch and even funnier to try to teach as a white guy from Canada. Um, but we we did that. So we taught these gospel singing classes and then we had interns one year for a year or so and these two young girls and they taught the gospel singing class for a while. And they added a piece to it which was clever, right? So we would we would teach hymns that are familiar to us or spirituals or or gospel songs. Um, in English and Japanese, and then we might talk about the meaning and the content there is kind of Christian, it's obviously Christian in nature to begin with, but they came up with the idea of, let's, let's tell the origin stories of these songs, either their history or their scriptural connections for each of the, for these songs, and they decided to end with um, that song, they ended every, every one of their sessions with, God be with you till we meet again, right, do you know that, do you remember that? Okay, so they looked, at 755 in our hymn book if you want to read it, and they couldn't find a scriptural connection for it. So, so the scriptural connection, let me get my Bible out, that they found was um, Genesis chapter 31, it's the, it's the time that they could find people invoking God to watch over another party while they were parting, while they were separating. So this is Genesis chapter 31, uh, verses 43 to 50. Let me just read this. This is Jacob and Laban. Remember, their relationship was not always very easy, ever. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do today about these daughters of mine or their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant. So this would be parity covenant, right? You and I. Let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone, set it up as a pillar, and Jacob said to his kinsfolk, Gather stones, and they took stones and made a heap, and there they, and there by the heap. Laban called it Jager Sahudatha. But Jacob, Laban called it that, Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he called it Galid and the pillar Mizpah, for the, he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. What a nice sentiment. God, may God protect you while we're parting. If you ill-treat my daughters or if you take wives in addition to my daughters, though no one else is with us, remember that God is witness between you and me. The sentiment is not very much, I hope God takes care of you while we're parting. It's God's watching you. And if you betray me, he's going to get you. That's the sentiment, right? That was, that was how God was invoked both in the, in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, so the non-Hebraic uh, cultures, and in, in the Hebrew culture. You invoke the name of God to protect the covenant, to punish the other guy if he broke it, and to punish yourself if you broke it. You called on God. So you cut a covenant. In Japan, which doesn't have that history, even so we were sitting down one day uh, having dinner at a family's house, and we got talking about marriage, and marriage covenant, and traditions, and history. And the father said, in old Japan, in certain communities, when your daughter married someone, the family would give the daughter a dagger. And the message to the daughter as he gave it, yeah, I've thought about giving my daughter a dagger, but not for this reason. The message to the daughter was, you're entering into a covenant with this husband. If it doesn't work out, don't come back. And it wasn't a dagger to stab the husband. It was, it was weighing on to the daughter. You make this work. This is covenant is serious. If it doesn't, use this and don't come back. So, as far as I know, my father-in-law didn't give my wife a dagger. <laughs> And if he did, she wouldn't use it for that. <laughs> it would definitely be me on the on the receiving end. <laughs> um, and they don't do that anymore. But that was a piece there. And the idea is the same. When you enter into a covenant, it's a serious deal with serious consequences. Life and death. It's the same in the covenant with God. So, um, I mentioned this when I preached another time here. I think the Aunt Norma ate my donuts. Do you remember that? Or a new approach modeling divinity. That's a nicer one, but Aunt Norma ate my donuts is certainly easier to remember. If you want, an, you want a way to kind of unfold the Old Testament, think Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. And the promises and covenants to those five parties will help you navigate the entire Old Testament. So to Adam, um, actually it's to Eve, really, and it's actually part of a curse. But there's a, a glimmer of hope in the promise during the curse, right? So Adam and Eve sin, they're kicked out of the garden. It was the, it was the serpent that led them to that. So God makes a promise to the serpent. He said, you're going you're to crawl in the dust on your belly for all time. You're now the least of the animals, of the beasts. And there will be enmity between you and the woman. You will strike the heel of her seed and her seed will crush your head. And seed there, child there, is singular. And so Christians for all time have taken that to mean the descendant of Eve, who would be Jesus, is going to crush the head of the serpent. That's the promise. Then you have Noah, the flood, and then after the flood, God says, never again will I do this in this way, and I give you the rainbow as a promise, as a covenant sign. So when you see the storms and you think, oh, it's over, you look at the rainbow and remember, I'm not going to destroy the world this way again. Those are, those are universal covenants to everybody, right? But then in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a, a specific covenant with Abraham. And it's what we just read. And let me see if I can find it now that I dropped my sermon on the floor. Oh, it stayed together. <clears throat> Genesis 12, one through 3. Go from your country and your kindred to your fa- and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So it's a command... But here's the promises, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'm curious if any of us here are a direct blood descendant of the Israelites, All right, Me says John's in. Probably. But probably not. <laughs> this promise is a pretty big deal for you and me. That last clause, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, because that fulfilled through Christ is the reason you and I can sit here and call ourselves the people of God. Because of that promise. But the, but the covenant with Abraham was cut. Just like I mentioned our, <laughs> the covenant between Jacob and Laban or the Japanese dagger going to the daughter. So here it is in Genesis 15. Uh, read this on your own time. I'm not going to read it all. But Genesis 15, 5 through 21 is the story of then Abraham going out and... Uh, God's talking to Abraham and said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And he gives them instructions and he takes the different beasts. So uh, there's a heifer, female goat, a ram, and then doves and pigeons. And the larger ones, he kills and he splits them in half and makes a pathway. Right? And then the doves and the pigeons he puts on either side of the path too. The way it worked would have been both parties of the covenant walk through that path as if to say, if I break my side, may this happen to me. Abraham spends the day keeping the crows and buzzards off of the meat. And then night comes and what happens? God causes a deep and terrible sleep to come on Abraham. And then God passes through alone in the form of a smoking a jar, And the statement there is, if you break your end of the deal, I'm going to take this on. Again, that's what happens to us through Christ. right? Covenants with Moses and David, uh, you can read on your own time. But I want to move ahead and, and show something. Go ahead to the next slide. This is my one sermon slide. All right. Anybody know what this is? You've learned by now that my sermons are going to be full of quizzes. Sorry, that's just... Right? Good, good. So, Mona Lisa, you're on the right track. It's, Mona Li- it's a Mona Lisa-like picture. It is a, a, a painting of Jesus. Anybody know what the painting is specifically? It was in the news a lot last year. A lot, a lot. Uh, it's da Vinci's last known remaining painting that hadn't been found. It's one of only 20 da Vinci originals, right? painted in the early 1500s. It's Salvatore Mundi. It's the savior of the world. Uh, it's Jesus holding up fingers of blessing. In this hand, the 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 glass globe, which is a it's a subject of all kinds of debate because the refraction is not working right in the globe. That symbolizes the globe of the heavens, so not just the earth but all of the cosmos. Jesus holding it in his hand and saving it. But why was it in the news? Because it, it just showed up recently. It had been going undercover as a bad restoration for several centuries and was was bought by a group who restored it. They thought maybe it was the actual one. They had known about this painting for 500 years. We've known that the Salvatore Mundi existed, but we didn't know where it was or which one was the original. There's about 20 fakes. There's different copies of this, and then there's a bunch of derivative works that look similar. But a group bought this, this one. They paid a bunch of money to restore it, and then it went up for auction through Christie's. And it was sold last year. Anybody know how much it sold for? The gavel price was four hundred million, plus fifty-three million in fees. So four hundred fifty-three million dollars made it the most expensive painting ever sold. And now it's uh, it will be on display in the Louvre, Abu Dhabi, or the Louvre in Saudi Arabia. That's where that's who bought it, and that's where it's going to be housed. Why so much money for a painting? Um, Da Vinci painted it. It was owned, uh, probably painted, commissioned for Louis VII and his consort, Anne of Brittany. Um, It was passed down from royal to royal through the aristocracy. It came to England with uh, Henrietta Maria when she married Charles I of England, 1625, remained in her private chambers for a while. Uh, they know it existed there because another painter made an engraving of it, and 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 attributed it to to Da Vinci. Uh, Charles I was executed. It was stayed in his collection, it, uh, and then it was valued at thirty pounds. At that point, uh, it was sold to in sixteen fifty one to a Mason. Uh, and then it was returned to Charles II of England after the English Restoration. It passed down. It was through Whitehall, through James II, his mistress, Catherine Sedley, Count of Dorchester. Then John Sheffield, First Duke, blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on and on. It was restored a few times. And then they thought it was, a, they attributed the restoration. They thought it was an original painting of one of da Vinci's students. Right? So it got lost. Then they found it. They restored it. And now it was sold for $453 million. So here's my question. Why the value on this painting? Is it, is it the quality of the artwork itself? That's part of it. But that's not all of it. Um, we have some painters here. And given enough time... They might paint this or something similar. If I painted this, an exact copy of it, could I sell it for $453 million? It was exactly the same. I mean, perfectly exactly the same. Could I sell it for that? Why? If we use a computer to make an exact replica, which we're getting close to be able to do, could I sell it for that? No, right? No, why? So why is important? Authenticity of what? The signature, right? And the signature belongs to the one who painted it, Da Vinci. So that's one thing, the guy who painted it, right? And then it's history, who it has belonged to through the centuries. Our old covenant begins with the words, in the beginning, God created the world. And it continues with the story of creation. And in that, there's the strong statement that the sun and the stars were to rule over the darkness, right? So the light wins. In the New Covenant, as John has it, it begins with the same story. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It begins with the story of creation, and the darkness does not overcome the light. There's an echo of the light winning. And to us, it tells us we have value because of the one who painted us, who created us. Covenant says, you belong to me. And it's the one to whom we belong that gives us our value. And that's what I want to end the sermon today, because I think that's There's all different directions we could go with covenant, but we are a covenant people, Paul tells us in in Romans 11, grafted into this. This was not our genetic heritage, but we've been brought into this covenant. We've been called a royal priesthood. We've been called, (laughs) remember the suzerainty covenant? You had the the king and his subjects. But in Christ, we are co-heirs, With Christ. He takes the covenant and he makes it something completely different. So in 1 Corinthians 11, when he says, This is the covenant, when Paul says, I pass on to you what was given to me the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread when he'd given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup also after supper saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus was the one who was cut. So that we might be co-heirs with him. In the fulfillment of the covenant, all the way back to Abraham. And I want to end with Sabbath because it's something that as Christians we have pretty much set aside. But part of the reason the Sabbath was tied into the covenant commandments all the way through history was because God was saying, Remember, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You are not slaves. And in our society, I would say we are not slaves even to our performance, even to our success, even to our abilities. We are free in Christ because of the covenant. And the value that we have as people isn't because of what we do or what we accomplish or how smart we are or how we look. It's because of the one who created us and the one to whom we belong. Let's pray. God, we do thank you um, that you have called us into this amazing story. And um, at the same time, we know that the things that we look at, we only, we see them as if looking dimly in a mirror, we see a dim reflection of the truth of them, of the weight of them. We don't grasp what the cost of the covenant was. Uh, We don't grasp what the implications were. Or are for our lives, but we do hang on to uh, the identity and the value and the freedom that you give us, and we ask that in the ways that you call us to participate, uh, even sometimes ourselves um, to suffer for the covenant, that you would also grant us an equal measure of strength and hope and expectation. We pray this Jesus in your name. Amen.